Good morning, Orchard people. How you doing? Good. I'm Doug Self. I identify myself because we've got people watching online from who knows where, and they've seen Daniel preaching all along, and that's our son, Rebecca and I. It's our older son, and uh, when we started the church at Carbondale 31 years ago, he was a sophomore in high school, and uh, <laughs> he, was not this, he was not especially pastoral material in some of those days, but we're, we're so proud of him. There are people who were with us the very first Sunday we met 31 years ago in May, and we met right down by the Black Nugget across the street. In the first service, there were several people who were in that room with us on the first Sundays. Anybody here who was there at the beginning? Oh, the 10 o'clock's all newbies. Well, that's all right. That's all right. We're glad you're with us. Over the last 31 years, the orchard has been blessed by God and some great people, and we're so glad that you're here today. Today, we're going to look at Beyond the Resurrection. Last week, it was really good. Daniel ex exposed and, and explained about the resurrection, but we're going to look at two factors, two things that came along as a result of the resurrection that are still valid today. Now, I like to think about what I'm going to talk to you today as, well, if you didn't know about the resurrection and Jesus and all that stuff, and I told you this story, you would think you were in the middle of a superhero movie. Do you like those, Avengers? Guardians of the Galaxy? You know, stuff. I don't watch, I don't watch those usually, but I know Superman and Spider-Man and Wonder Woman and, and Ant-Man. <laughs> and usually we like origin stories. Like, how did Spider-Man get to be Spider-Man? A radioactive spider bit him. So whatever bites you, you become a super powered one of those, right? And, and what we're going to look at today is, is so cool because I think all the superhero movies are taken from this story and what happened we're going to look at today. All right, so you know in every movie there's an evil villain and then there's the hero that comes to rescue, but in this story the hero is down for the count. I mean dead. But then, boom, the hero rises over the grave, knocks out the bad guy, and infuses thousands and millions of his followers with his superpowers. Pretty cool, huh? Well, that's what happened. We're going to look at how it happened. Go back and see what, what this was like. Now, the setting is the night before the crucifixion. Jesus and his disciples, the 12 of them, are in a room, probably fairly dim with a, a, a candles or, or a lamp, and they're having a Passover meal. Now, his disciples have no clue what's about to happen. It's Passover week, and I'll tell you what, they're hoping that somehow this week Jesus does his Messiah thing, takes over, runs the Romans out, establishes Israel as a theocracy, and they all get cabinet-level positions. That's what they're hoping. But then Jesus completely messes with them, because after dinner, he says, hey guys, I'm out of here. <laughs> what? Yeah, I'm leaving. I'm going so far away, you, you can't get there. Now, we're going to play with this a little bit and think about what it was like from the disciples' perspective, because they are not religious people. Do you hear that? They were not religious people. Have you been around professional fishermen? Have you been around tax collectors? 
these guys were rejected by the religious people. And they have been on their heels most of Jesus' ministry for three years, trying to figure out what happened. And so their reaction, their response, I'm going to try to capture a little bit. Can you put yourself in that room that night with all your expectations and hear what Jesus has to say? In John 14, pick it up in verse 1. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were no so, if that were not so, what I have told you, I'm going to go there and prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. How shocked do you think they were? Boy, wait a second, Jesus. You just said you're leaving Father's house. Where is that? You're going to go up there and fix some rooms up for us? We have no idea what you're talking about at all. And then verse 5, Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answered and said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, it's very important you understand what Jesus is saying. Yeah, go back to that, that one and what he's not saying. He didn't say, I'm the only way to heaven. He didn't even say, I'm the only way to God. What did he say he's the only way to? not a trick question. (laughs) The Father. Now, the disciples are hearing this. Back in the day, if someone had uh, described God as Father, it would have been shocking. All the gods that they knew about in the Roman Empire were always in a bad mood, and they were far away on Mount Olympus and do not raise their attention to you. But Jesus is describing Almighty God as Father, Father's house. And so they're, they're, they're rocked by he's going away. And then by the father thing, it's important, if you were to, if you were to uh, examine all the religions and religious philosophies of the world, you would not find any other that depicted the deity like this as a loving father. It's very significant as you understand what Jesus is saying here. And so... Uh, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. <laughs> Disciples are, yeah, yeah. And so they may be thinking that Jesus is going to point to the door and him walk, <laughs> will walk the Heavenly Father. But that's not what happens. Look what Jesus says. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The disciples are like, whoa. He's identifying himself with God. Well, we've heard the deal about him being son of God, but he's the father. If you've seen him, you've seen the father. We've been with him three years, and this is coming out of left field. This is like he's introducing all kinds of new stuff. He's leaving, but the father, what is going on here? And then Jesus says in chapter 16, Very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Oh, this is for your good that I'm leaving. Unless I go, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now, in Greek, advocate is paraclete. You may have heard this before. Para is alongside of, and clete is a helper. So in other words, uh, advocate 
is someone who sticks by your side like in court, advocates for you, provides for you, supports for you. And so they knew the word, but they could not understand how he was going to send an advocate, what that advocate would be like. How would that happen? He goes on to say, if you love me, keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. All right, so he's saying, I've been your advocate. He'll give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. I'm leaving. He'll be with you forever. The spirit of truth. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. In a world of lies and deception, Jesus is going to send them an advocate who is the spirit of truth. The world can't accept him. It doesn't see him or know him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. What? Jesus, you've been beside us for three years. You say that the spirit of truth you're sending will be in us? How could that even be possible? The advocate. Notice, it's not an it. It's not a force. It's a him. Personal. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, is personal. It's not just a force. All right. And so Jesus says in verse 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he'll tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So in other words, even though I'm gone, whatever is of me, the advocate, the the spirit of truth will take and make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So the riches of God, all the treasures of God, through Jesus, through the Advocate, the Spirit, be made known to us. Wow. Now, it's kind of entertaining to put ourselves in place of the disciples. And understand, they, they, were, they had no clue. <clears throat> But what we want to do is analyze these verses for theology. We're all going to be theologians. You don't have to go to seminary to be a theologian. What we're going to do is take these and see what we can draw out of them that are theological truths about the Bible, about Jesus, about God. So if we simply look at these, not technically, the first thing that we notice is that Jesus is regarded as the Son of God, and he describes Almighty God as Father. Personal and relational. That was a shocking teaching in that day. Now, the second thing is, is that Jesus says who he is and what he's going to do is the only way to the Father. Not to heaven, but to the Father. Now, probably wherever... God is, heaven is. But can there be heaven without God's presence? No, it wouldn't be heaven. And so heaven's there, but Jesus says specifically, eternity is a relationship more than it is a place. Do you get that? Eternity is a relationship more than a place. Now next he said, he's leaving the disciples and returning to his Father's presence. He's leaving them as a physical-bodied person. And then, fourthly, he is going to send them the advocate, the spirit of truth, 
who will come alongside of them, care for them, provide for them, and work from within them. The Spirit, Holy Spirit, will indwell them. And now, this is fairly technical. <clears throat> we have a description of the Trinity. If you've been to church at all, you've heard the phrase, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity, one God, three in one. Now, don't worry, nobody really <laughs> understands it. But it really makes sense when you look at the plan of creation and rescue and infilling. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All right, so after this broom speech, they go out to a garden. Jesus is arrested, tried, uh, terrorized, tortured, crucified, and laid in a tomb. And so now it's Saturday. It's Saturday before resurrection. But they don't know. I mean, they've, Jesus has told them, but it's like, what do you think the disciples would talk about as they hide out, afraid that the authorities are going to come for them next? Well, what you talk about if you've been with Jesus three years and all of a sudden he was crucified and died, <clears throat> laid in a tomb. As far as you know, that's where he went away too. You might have talked about some times with, oh, remember that storm in the boat? Jesus was asleep. Oh, I remember that. He got up, you know. They probably talked about that and talked about the crucifixion, how terrible it was. Then they talked about, what, what's this about the advocate? Well, Jesus rose again, and he spent 40 days with the disciples teaching them. And then before he ascended to the Father's presence, this is what he said in Acts 1-4. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. Okay, here you're having lunch with Jesus, who was dead and rose again. And he tells you, don't leave Jerusalem until you get the gift of the father. Well, they're going to believe anything he says at this point, because he predicted his death and resurrection, and he pulled it off. So they're listening. And then in verse 8, you will receive power, superpower, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so he says that you're going to be empowered by God's Spirit to take this to every nation. Now, we're, we're here in 2021. How many nations do you think have absolutely no Christians anywhere? Maybe not openly. I bet every nation... Every county, every community has Christians. I would say the plan has been pretty effective. But you've got to understand, more than the plan, it was the power. Now, we're going to see after the promise of God came, the Holy Spirit, the promise of Jesus came, the church. Two things after the resurrection that continue to this day. Holy Spirit indwelling believers and believers making up the church. Acts 2.42. <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. I want to give you Acts 2, uh, verse 1, to see how the Holy Spirit came. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they're sitting. Now the Greek word for wind and spirit is the same, pneuma. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, can you imagine? They're standing there, 
all of a sudden in this house, it's like hurricane wind, and then you've got this t- fire coming in, chasing it around, and now it's on top of each person, but not burning them. And they begin to speak in a language they did not learn. So John is, says, well, Peter, what did you say? I didn't understand. Peter says, I don't know. What did you say? But there were, there were people standing around, some of them from Galatia, and some from Rome, and some from northern Africa, and they said, those are those are bumpkins from Galilee. How did they learn this language? Because they were telling the glory of God in the languages that people around them, remember Jesus said in all parts of the world, all the parts of the world were there to start it all off. And then later on in Acts 2.42, we have the church described what it does. Now the word church in Greek is ekklesia. Ek is out and Lacia is called, called out once. The word church does not mean building. This is the church house. This is where the church meets. But if you come here on Tuesday, you're not going to church. You're not coming to church. We, this is where we meet. Ecclesia means the called out ones. It's a movement. Ecclesia in Jesus' day, have been in use in the Roman Empire to describe a gathering of citizens in a locale who would come together to discuss matters uh, of urgency to that locale. So the word wasn't invented by Jesus, but they knew it was a gathering of people to carry out the business, the called out one's business. So here's what they did in Acts 2.42. This is after uh, 3,000 people got saved. Uh, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. So they would get together, they'd pray, have communion. They would listen to the apostles' teaching about what it meant to be spirit-filled, to be Christians, and they would enjoy one another's company. Uh, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. How many of you know it would take the Holy Spirit's power to be that generous? We're not, we're not natively just that generous. But they would see somebody in the church that had a need. They would sell property and they would take the money and distribute it to those who had need. That, that generosity, that compassion began to mark the church as I'll show you in just a moment. It says they continued to be together, broke bread in homes with glad and sincere hearts. These were happy people, and they weren't living in happy times, guys. They were under the power of Rome. They were oppressed. They praised God and enjoyed the favor of the people. The Lord added to their number uh, daily those being saved. And so people around these Christians who were Jewish people, primarily some Gentiles, They saw the lifestyle of this new creation, the church. They saw the people within it. They saw the joy. They saw the fellowship. They saw the compassion and generosity. And they said, I'll have me some of that. And so they shared the faith. Jesus died for your sins on the cross. He rose from the grave. If you will receive him as Jesus, your Lord, you'll be filled with the Spirit. So hundreds or thousands joined the church like that. Now, The church, this little band of believers, about 120 uh, at the time of Pentecost, 
And then they grew until the year A.D. 300. It's estimated there were 3.5 million Christians in the Roman Empire. That's about one-tenth of the population. And they certainly grew beyond that until almost half of the Roman Empire. In 313, Constantine, the emperor, became a Christian, legalized uh, Christianity. You see, Christians were uh, thought to be atheists because they would not worship the Roman gods. And, And so over those years, Christianity... Non-religious, non-institutional spread throughout the Roman Empire and grew to millions of people. No plan, no strategy. Not, it's not a religion. A religion is a performance-based thing. In religion, you have to do certain things to get God to like you, to approve of you. In Christianity, Jesus did all that needed to have been done, we now have God's approval. So we're not in this as a religion to get God's approval. We're moving from God's approval to be obedient to Jesus. Do you see the difference? Non-institutionalized. That's the way it grew. Now remember, it's the Holy Spirit that animates the church. The indwelling power of the Holy Spirit is the marker of Christians. Now, we're the Orchard Church, and we meet in this building. At 8.30, there were other Orchard Christians here. Crystal River Baptist, New Creation, Cornerstone, Crossroads, all up and down the valley, there are Christians meeting. All over the world, there are Christians meeting. Now, I was thinking, would it be cool if there were a satellite with this kind of an infrared radar on it so that it picked up the light That was the Holy Spirit within a person. So it passes over, and down below, you've got Afghanistan, and you've got these lights that come on. Nobody knows they're there, but they're Christians, or whatever country that is. And so it passes over Carbondale, pinging Christians. Would you ping? Are you a born-again Christian? The person beside you? People ask me, Doug, do I have to be born again to be a Christian? I said, well, what other kind is there? Well, some people adopt, some people admire Jesus and think of themselves as Christians. Or because they go to a church, they think of themselves as Christians. But a Christian, by, defined by God's Word and what Jesus said, is a person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So you can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Can you be a church without the Holy Spirit? Believe me, there's some who've tried. <laughs> it's not very pretty. I was in Rotary for a while. A great organization, great people. But it wasn't empowered by God. We pretty well had to generate the power from within ourselves. Church is different. We're empowered by God, individually and all together. Why would you want to be a Christian and not be indwelt by the Holy Spirit? I, I don't know. Other than some people are afraid... If they're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, they'll do some really embarrassing things. Maybe some people have, but that's not your fear. If the Holy Spirit indwells you, he prepares you for everything you face in life. If the Holy Spirit indwells you, you'll be a better husband. Because as a man, you've got so much patience. You've got so much patience within you. Some have more than others. With the Holy Spirit filling you and your wife repeats over and over some instructions... 
Some people call that nagging. Uh, you You can draw upon power of the Holy Spirit to be patient beyond your amount of patience you've got within yourself. So you can be kind and loving even though her behavior is perhaps irritating you. And same way, vice versa. I mean, husbands can be irritating sometimes too. Parents, kids, uh, sons, daughters. The Holy Spirit is within you to fulfill what it means to be a human being as a father, son, wife, a husband. Not necessarily just what you do in church, but all week long to be a better employee, better employer. Uh, can you imagine a, a superhero like Superman or Wonder Woman, Spider-Man, without superpower? Would they ever make a movie about a superhero without superpower? A superhero without superpower is just a kid in a Halloween costume. <laughs> They're not getting anything done. They're not saving anybody. And so through the Holy Spirit's power, the church, the called out ones, individually and gathered, down through the years, soaked throughout the Roman Empire. And as they did, it wasn't miracles, because you don't read about a whole lot of miracles coming after the first hundred years or so. It was the lives of the Christians that were so compelling that others wanted to become Christians too. The early Christians lived a life individually and together that brought about societal change. Have you heard that word recently? Societal change. Let me tell you how. In the Roman Empire, it was common. There weren't abortion clinics. Roman women uh, in, in a household, they would decide they didn't want a baby, and so they would just leave the baby out by the road or in a bush somewhere. This was called exposing infants. And typically in the Roman population, if you're walking along and see a baby that's crying, you're like, well, I guess that's the unwanted kid, and you keep going. Not Christians. A Christian encountering a baby out exposed, picked it up, took it home, fed it, and raised it. I don't know how many that accounted for the new Christians. How about women? In Roman households, or anywhere, women were property. To be bought, sold, exiled, killed. In a Christian household, a woman was precious and co-equal with her husband. Is that a little different? I think women in the Roman Empire, seeing these Christian households and how women were treated, they were like, I'll have me some of that. Hey, honey, come here. Let's get saved so we can change this thing up a little bit. How about plagues? If there were COVID-19 and there were plagues back in the day, all the population of the village or town would flee and leave their dying loved ones behind to avoid getting sick. The Christians stayed. Probably not all Christians. Christians knew they had a life beyond this life. And they were animated by the Holy Spirit. And so they would stay and tend to the dying people. And so when the other people came back, they saw the Christians had stayed. Some Christians died because they got the disease. But others nursed people back to health. They buried the ones who died. Is that courageous compassion or what? That was so compelling that millions of people became Christians. And then the Bible does not 
affirm slavery. But in the Roman Empire, 40% of the people there were slaves. It wasn't racial. It was just people who were being conquered or ran out of money and sold themselves into slavery. Christianity transformed it because Christian masters became kind to their servants and even released and freed some of them. Christian servants became so uh, cheerful in their duties and, and taking care of the business of the household that Christian masters would get saved because of their servants. Uh, slavery's not right, but in a society where almost half the population were slaves, now Christianity would abolish it later. It's a fascinating to study slavery, but it transformed society. And then the way that they suffered, the way Christians suffered. They were persecuted. Well, they suffered because of just things going on. Uh, perhaps there was a sickness or poverty or, uh, you know, no food. They suffered that way. The way they suffered was so different and compelling. They suffered nobly, with dignity, with assurance that God was with them even in their suffering. It, it, so much so, I don't, I don't have this slide, but I want to read to you. Philippians says um, to Christians, and this is, this is like 60 A.D., do everything without complaining or arguing so you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. All right, that was written last week, right? In which you will shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. And so the lives of Christians, as they suffered, was so different than the lives of people who weren't Christians that so many became Christians because they wanted that dignity, that ability, that assurance, that courage, even while suffering. Uh, one of the governors of a province wrote to the emperor one time and uh, said, these Christians meet every Sunday. He's trying to decide what to do with them because they're considered atheists by the population. He said they meet once a week and they take an oath not to commit crimes, not to steal, to be honest and avoid adultery, and he could find no fault with them. I mean, here are these upstanding citizens of the Roman Empire. The difference is they meet and they take an oath not to steal, not to be criminals, but they were accused of cannibalism in their meetings. How could that happen? Well, let's see. The body and blood of Jesus. And so some people accused them of eating infants because Christians took infants and raised them, and cannibalism. So they were always under this pall. They were such good people, living such incredible lives, and yet there was this suspicion about them and these accusations about them. They experienced wave after wave of persecution across the empire. This is a canceled culture here because Caesar worship was demanded, worshiping the God. Here's what they would do. If Rome lost a battle or there was an earthquake, the Roman leaders would say it's, it's because not enough of our citizens are really uh, sacrificing to the gods or to Caesar. So they would line everybody up in town. They would put a uh, charcoal grill here, and they would have this little uh, incense thing. You would go by, take a pinch of incense, 
and you would drop it on the grill and say, Caesar is Lord, and you're good to go. And so if you were in town, if you were in Carbondale, and they lined everybody up, had a charcoal grill, incense, and you go by, and all you got to do is put the incense on the altar and say, there is no God. What would you do? Because if you don't, you're led away to jail, torture, and perhaps a terrible death. But even the way some Christians die being torn apart by wild beasts, the dignity and the hope and the love that shone through in the example of Jesus compelled many to become Christians. It's really interesting. If you read the New Testament, the believers were not shielded from difficulty. Now, you would think that when you become a Christian, you won't have any more problems. Well, I don't know what Bible you're reading or if you're not, because the New Testament is a handbook for how to suffer. Is there any suffering going on in our culture, our community, our nation now? Lots of different kinds of, of suffering. And so we're not immune, but we're empowered. We're empowered with resources of God, of joy and peace and love to endure even difficulties, even suffering, like a traffic jam. You don't have to yell or make hand signals to other people. As a spirit-filled believer, you can be different. Now, um, I believe it's time for us to live out our birthright. How about let's take the mantle a spirit-filled believers who exhibit faith, hope, and love, courageous compassion. Let's live that out during the week, individually, together. But we've got to drop a different mantle to do that, don't we? We've got to drop the mantle of judgmentalism that Christians have been accused of, of Judging people who believe or act differently than we do. Whatever made you think that you were called or deputized into enforcement of moral principles on people who don't believe what you believe? Of course, they're just acting consistent with who they are. Once they get saved, we're made holy. And you can't behave your way into holiness. You're made holy by the Holy Spirit within you. And you can, you can behave out of holiness, not into it. It doesn't work that way. And so while it might have been well-intentioned, we Christians have gotten a reputation for being mean and judgmental and coming down on people for not having the same moral principles that we do. We're not deputized for enforcement. We're more into search and rescue. We're into repair and maintenance. We've got a job, but it's not enforcement. It's not criticizing people around us. If we can drop that so that we're perceived as mean and judgmental and begin to be perceived as joyful, loving, caring, compassionate people who live the spirit of Jesus, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul wrote. That's where God wants us to be. People, Christians, who are indwelt 
by the Spirit, individually and together, loving God, loving people in tangible ways. The needy, the poor, the disenfranchised, the lonely. But there's more than physical poverty. There's spiritual poverty. In our community, in our neighborhoods, you may not live by people who are uh, uh, starving, but you may be living by some people who are spiritually starving. Mental health issues have skyrocketed during the pandemic. Depression, anxiety, despair, fear, confusion, trash, self-image, isolation. Does that sound like needy people to you? Now, they don't look like it when they go to the store or when they're in your neighborhood. They're, they're trying to put on their best face. But if you will build a relationship with them of love and let them know you can be trusted and you're safe, they perhaps will let you know of the despair and depression that may have some of them on the brink of suicide, of the fear that they have about their loved ones or their finances. And you can bring them the hope of Jesus Christ. Because as I've told you, we follow the chain of evidence along the way so that we understand that spirit-filled, empowered Christians can bring hope to the world by living our lives in a way of love, in a way that looks beyond this life even, knowing that we are safe and secure, not only this life, but the next one as well. Those two things, the power, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Do you feel like you're filled with the Spirit? I can tell you, if you're a Christian, by the promise of God, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Can't be a Christian without it. But you may need to be filled again because we leak. Over and over in Acts, the apostles are freshly filled with the Holy Spirit when they face a challenge. If your faith has grown weak or you don't feel that indwelling, perhaps right now you can just softly pray. God, I'm your child. I believe in Jesus, his death and resurrection. I believe your spirit is within me. Stir it. Fill me. May I be a reflection of the life of Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You can pray that prayer. I've already given you a prayer you can pray if you've never believed in Jesus. If you're trying to be a Christian without the Holy Spirit, you just say, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for rising again. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit. I receive you as Lord. I receive the Spirit. That simple transaction brings you into being a new creature. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that in this room or whoever may be watching, that there will be a genuine openness to receiving or to the filling of the Holy Spirit. That we won't try to live another day on our own, in our own power, our own strength. But we will live empowered by your Spirit. 
In Jesus' name we pray. During this music, you may want to take of the cup that Jesus said, this is my blood, the, the bread that Jesus said, this is my body, that enabled a gateway to get the whole thing started.